We are in Matthew chapter 16, um, not long after the Lord has fed the 4,000 over in uh, the Gentile area, area of Decapolis. And then he has made his journey back to the other side. Evidently, Pharisees, there were those who questioned him. They're asking for a sign, you know, and he's saying, you know, are you are you kidding me? You know, what's going to be given to you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then it tells us now as he crosses over, evidently he comes from the, if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee this way, looking at the northwest corner, he comes over. And Mark chapter 8, verse 14, I believe, or verse 10, specifically tells us to this area of Dalmanutha. How many of you have been to Israel with us? All right. Well, the three of us should we talk after this. You know, <laughs> Dalmanutha is right over. Uh, it is it is by Magdala and a little bit south, right at the foot of the Arbel. So it is not close to Tiberias or to Capernaum. And uh, that seems to be where he goes now with the guys. Verse 5 says, and when is, chapter 16, by the way, excuse me. It says, when his disciples were coming to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. It wouldn't be that concerning, except there's no markets there. You know, they're not going to go to Tiberias, it's a Gentile city. They're too far from Capernaum. And it just says they forgot to take bread with them. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So take heed present, active, this is something you need to do. And then he says, beware, that's a present imperative. You have to do this, and you have to do it continually. So you need to be watching for some things, and you need to be constantly be taking heed, beware, be on your toes in regards to other things. And what he's saying here, it is the leaven, and we'll come around and talk to that a bit more, the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Again, these two groups normally were at odds with each other, um, but when you see them come together, it's because there's a common enemy. You know, they're both troubled with Jesus and the fact that he seems to be taking authority and notoriety away from them. So they've joined together to now be an adversary. It's very interesting to me as I look at the world today. I see some big corporations, some big companies, some big names, people that have always been uh, in competition with each other coming together to, to fight against what they perceive as some threat or some type of restriction. Uh, when that happens, you kind of say, where's the command and control center here? But here, these are the Pharisees and Sadducees come together, and Jesus warns the disciples they have to look out. Look, the Pharisees started out as a great group in the Old Testament after the Babylonian captivity. 
and they wanted to preserve orthodoxy. They, the scribes were born out of the Pharisees. They wanted to make sure the law of Moses, the scripture, was maintained. They had a good beginning. Even sadder than that, the Sadducees were from the they were the Zadok, Zadok from Zadok, uh, you know, who was is one of the most remarkable priestly families in Israel when you read through Ezekiel. And through several hundred years, they had cooled and calcified, and they got hardening of the categories, you know. So here are the Pharisees, they become the ritualists, and they constantly add to the word of God. Deuteronomy said, don't add to it, don't diminish from it. And they had added to the word of God. Again, the Talmud is coming together at this point in time. It is remarkable how restrictive it was and how they stepped into every little nook and cranny of someone's life where the word of God didn't go. The Sadducees were the rationalists. They were taking away from the word of God. They believed in the first five books, but they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in spiritual things. Annas was from the Sadducees. They were the ruling class. Uh, they were raking people over the coals for money in Jerusalem at this point in time. Very wealthy. But Jesus says you need to look out for the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. They had just been grilling him over some things. He says it to the guys. It says, and they, the disciples, now began reasoning among themselves, saying, they were saying, it is because we have taken no bread. That's the reason he's talking to us about leaven. He knows we forgot bread. You should laugh at that. And these are the apostles, not the b-apostles. This is the foundation of the church here, saying he's, he's bugged because we forgot to bring bread. Jesus is going to say to him exactly what you're thinking. You guys, can't you remember the 5,000 that we fed? Can't you remember the 4,000 we fed? What do you mean? You, 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 you've forgotten bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves because you've brought no bread? You know, why are you doing this? Uh, you know, he's faithful. He's been faithful to them all along. They were with him on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, consider the sparrows. They, they don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are ye not of greater value than many sparrows? He, they, they were with him. They heard him teach that. But everybody said, oh, that's a, a great Bible study. Except when you forget bread. Do you not understand, the idea is yet, and that's why it says it there, the light hasn't gone on yet. He said, neither remember the day, and, and they did because it's in all four Gospels. He said, with the loaves, the five loaves and the five uh, fish, and how many baskets you took up afterwards. Now, that's the first feeding because he uses the word kofinos, the Jewish handheld personal basket. 
And they should remember that, right? The loaves and the fishes fed the multitude, 5,000 men plus women and children. And then at the end of the day, all the work to gather up the leftovers. And it says, that again, they come back to him with five, I mean, 12 personal baskets. Each one of them, weren't 13, each one of them had a basket and looked at the master in amazement. And no doubt one of them said grace again at that point in time. And he says, neither, you're not remembering either the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many baskets took ye up. And then this is a different word for baskets. This is the, they were in Gentile territory. It had just happened. This is the spiridos, the large Gentile baskets. Remember, Paul was let down over the wall in Damascus in a basket. It's one of those, those these large ones. And again, so fitting, all of that should have been speaking to them. And then he says, how is it that you do not understand? You're not yet understanding. There's a present tense. And I speak it not unto you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees. I wasn't talking about bread. I was talking about something else. Look, leaven, <clears throat> you know, it tells us in Galatians, and Paul says again in Corinthians, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So it isn't just looking out for the leaven of, it's looking out for a little leaven. The, the warning, you know, to us, a little bit of ritualism begins to strangle this. A little bit. And the problem, of course, with ritualism, it seems good when you get it in those small amounts. It looks like somebody's really trying, you know, they're really trying to do better. They're re- and they can be judgmental then towards other people, but that leaven permeates. Doesn't stay little. The leaven of the Sadducees, the rationalism, the taking away from the word of God. You see somebody in the church start to compromise a little bit, and pretty soon those are the people they hang around with, and then they're all compromising a little bit more. Then they're criticizing the Pharisees, you know, and the, they, they develop parties. It becomes divisive. And look, we live in, in, again, the church today. Think of what the church is doing. That, You know, <clears throat> I think we should be salt and light. We should be an influence in our culture. But you look at, at how social justice becomes the center of what the church is doing instead of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you look at the things that begin to happen morally, okay, we need to include these people, include these people, and we want them to come. And for the sake of being relevant, we let down, you know, the divine parameters given us by Christ so that when an unbeliever walks in the church, the light should go on. What is going on here? It should be a completely different environment than the world out there that they're getting sick of and they're realizing is empty. They shouldn't come in here and not be able to tell a whole lot of difference. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be like that. So you have a little bit of leaven on both sides. You can front slide or backslide. You know, the ritualists, they front slide. The, the rationalists, they backslide. And Jesus, he loves these guys. And look, he's going to talk to them about the fact that he's the Christ. He's going to talk to them about the crucifixion, the, the clearest that he has so far. They need to understand there isn't anything they can do to add to what he accomplishes on the cross. And there isn't anything they should do to take away from what that demands, because they're going to be told to take up their cross and follow him. 
So he's challenging the guys. He's talking to them. Look, this is in the last year of public ministry. This is about maybe 10 months, maybe less than that, before the crucifixion. And he's moving with them to be alone with them. He came back from Gentile territory, the area of Dalmanutha. He's challenging them about these things. They're saying we forgot to take bread. It's a great opportunity for a lesson, isn't it? So he takes opportunity. It says, look in verse 12. Then understood they how that he bade them not to beware of sourdough bread. Don't look out for the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And by the way, um, in another place, Jesus says you need to look out for the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees and of Herod politics and of Herod. We have a different calling. We have a different destiny. We're here to be light and salt. We should be good citizens. We should bring uh, the values of the kingdom to bear on the culture that we live in. That benefits everyone. But this is not our home. We are pilgrims. We are passing through. We're here to be a light and to be salt in the process. But just a little bit of leaven from those different areas, if we, if we allow it, he says you've got to constantly watch and constantly beware. Because we're easily infected. And he says, you need to look out for those things. They understood then. Oh, he's not talking about bread. (laughs) I wonder sometimes if Jesus goes, oh, hey, you know. He's talking to them about doctrine, about teaching. And that's the way the enemy always comes, by the way. Since the Garden of Eden, hath God said, he always messes with the word of God. It's all the way through the scripture. The book of Deuteronomy was as they're coming into the land. God said, don't add to it. This is the exhortation before they take the promises of God. Don't add to the word of God. Don't take away from the word of God. Don't do that. You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees did that. At the very end of the Bible, it says anybody who adds to the words of this prophecy of this book, I'm going to add the plagues that are here to him. Anybody who takes away from the words of the prophecy or the book of the words of this prophecy... I'm going to take away from him his place in the holy city, in the new Jerusalem. So from the beginning to the end, God's people are told, this is divine. It's inerrant. It's the very breath of almighty God. We don't need anybody to add to it or take away from it. I don't need any slick new translation. Just give me the old funky (coughs) King James that I can't understand. And let the Holy Spirit tell me what it says. You know, just give me a literal translation. I appreciate that. And let let me be alone with that. And Jesus will talk to me. Don't help me because of how stupid I am. He says, And when Jesus then came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am. So now he's crossed over again. Caesarea Philippi is at the foot of Mount Hermon. Um, Herod Philip, one of Herod the Great's son, built this and dedicated it to Caesar. He didn't just call it Caesarea, 
because over on the sea, there Caesarea Maritina, there was the Caesar by the sea that was dedicated to Caesar. So he called this one Caesarea Philippi. Herod Philip had built it for Caesar. And it's in the area that's called Panius, um, after the, the, the Greek god of Pan, the goat, you guys know Pan. And uh, the, the people that live in that area today can't pronounce the P, so it's called Banias when you go there to Israel today. Banias. Um, this is the area, again, it's the foot of Mount Hermon starting to slope up there. Uh, when you get there, some of you have been there with us, uh, there used to be a huge temple there to Pan. I think they had built one there to Zeus as well. And it's one of the sources of the Jordan River where it was coming out of the mouth of this cave. An earthquake has brought some of it down, and it looks a bit different now, but there and Tel Dan, all of the waters coming that forms the mighty Jordan River, which is about 12 foot wide and muddy. It's the muddy Jordan River, not the mighty Jordan River. But there he comes to that area. He's away from the Jews and the antagonism and the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees in a Gentile area where he wants to talk to his disciples. He's got things he wants to say to them. He doesn't want the distraction. So he's alone with the boys. And he begins by saying, who do men say, who are they saying? That's what he's asking them. And he asked them, that's a perfect tense. So you have to understand, it's not they got somewhere and he asked one question. Who, who do men say that I am? No, no. They're traveling. This is all on foot. And he is saying, perfect tense to them, who who are men in the culture we live in? It's a question. Who are men saying that Jesus is? You know, is he a prophet? Is he a teacher? Uh, he's part of the ascended masters. Uh, you know, he he left uh, Israel and spent time in Tibet or something crazy. You know, who are people saying Jesus is? And look, in our culture, there's a lot of anger against Jesus now. You know, when I was a kid... Even thieves respected. You didn't rob a church. You robbed a convenience store. Right? Now they're breaking in churches and stealing things from churches. Things have changed. And we hear them, you know, the profanity. They're, they're cursing Jesus and some of these protests and so forth. You're thinking, man, the world is crazy. Who do who Jesus is saying to the guys? Who, who do people, who are they saying, literally? What's the word out there on the street? Who are they saying that I am? That's probably important for us to know because we want to communicate who he is to them, so we need to know who they're saying that he is in the world that we live in. And sadly, a lot of the opinion out there is from watching a church that's off track, right? We're hearing of younger people coming back to the church now saying, look, I don't want to come to church on Sunday morning and have smoke machines and lasers and a nightclub because our nightclub's better. We go to our nightclub on Friday night. We don't want to come to church to a phony nightclub on Sunday morning. Could you please give us some hymns 
and a, and a pastor and a Bible or something. You know, that, that's happening in the hearts of young people that are they're burnt out out there. They're tired of the whole thing, and they don't want to come to something phony on Sunday morning because their nightclub is real and is better than the phony one on Sunday morning. So they're coming saying, tell us something, will you? Tell us something religious. We're empty and we hurt and everything out there hasn't helped us. Would you please tell us the truth? Wonderfully, that's happening too. Wonderfully, it's happening. And, and I believe we may see, that's because I'm an optimist in this respect, you know, and maybe another great awakening before Jesus comes. Oh, that would be so remarkable if we got to see that. I believe the tide that went out, the tide is beginning to come in again. So wonderful. So he's having this conversation. Jesus came as they, coast, they came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He spake, he asked, he was asking the disciples, who are men saying that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So this is a religious country. This is Israel. Of course, who would they say Jesus was? Even even Herod, Agrippa, heard that Jesus was doing miracles. He said, well, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead because they had a, uh, you know, a mythology that if somebody rose from the dead that God had used that they could do miracles when they rose from the dead. So some are saying that. Some are saying that he's Elijah uh, because Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So there's an expectancy about Elijah when they have the, you know, when they have the, the, the supper for Passover, they leave a plate, a spot for Elijah at the table, expecting him to come. Um, some say that you're Jeremiah. Now, you know, it's like that today. You watch it. Look, John the Baptist was political in some ways. He's the one that said to the political leaders, you're in adultery. This is wrong. You've taken your brother's wife. You can't do this. You know, and there are some Christians, that's all they want to do is vibrate in the political realm. Some say you're Elijah, power. And you hear that in the church today, right? Power! You know, you need to do that. In some churches, that's what has to happen. Power! That's it's all about. It's, it's, it's Elijah. It's not, you know. And then in other churches, Jeremiah, all you hear is judgment. Jeremiah was there in Jerusalem and couldn't find another godly person in the city. And uh, nobody was listening. And look, the, here's why. All of them reflect Christ. They were created in his image and likeness. None of them are Christ, but certainly there's a reflection in Christ that would challenge the, the, the civil authorities. There certainly is a reflection of Christ where there genuinely is power, and people do get healed and ministered to, and when they get saved, their lives are transformed. And certainly there is speaking about our blessed hope and, and the judgment that's coming on the world. I mean... Those things reflect him, but none of those are him. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. So they say, Master, well, this is who people are saying that you are. And then he asked the question, Spurgeon said, everybody that reads this verse has to ask themselves this question. He said, uh, Spurgeon said, error has many voices, 
truth has one. Error has many voices. Truth has one. Whom do men say that I am? Who do you say? Now, we can talk about everybody else, but now the question is personal. Who do you say that I am? That's a great question for us to ask ourselves, because we know, look, the day's coming when every, every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess of things in heaven, on the earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? We know that. Someday everybody's going to say who he is, like it or not. You and I now, look, remove Calvary, remove your family, remove when you sit alone with him. Who is he? Who is he? You know, my walk with the Lord's getting near 50 years right now. Within two years. And sometimes I think, Lord, I'm so thankful you haven't given up on me. I mean, I want you to be my savior because I love fire insurance. You know. But he's still talking to me about being my Lord. And he quickly became Lord over certain things in my life. I mean, I knew when I got saved, I really can't get stoned anymore. I can't punch people anymore. I can't, you know, the immorality. You know, you kind of know. But if he'd have told you in the very beginning, someday I'm going to be dealing with the thoughts in your mind and what goes on in your heart, you'd almost like, are you kidding? What do you want? I stopped punching people. I stopped drinking. I just, you know. So here at this point in my life, guys, I feel again... Um, It's amazing. I'm more convicted in some ways than I was when I was a young Christian. I'm more aware of my depravity. I think of Charles Fuller saying, you know, the older I get, the less I sin, but the more I repent. And it's a great, this is a great passage for me to sit alone with him and hear him ask me that question. In my Bible, those are red letters, right? But whom say ye that I am? And he's still talking today, and he's still talking to me. And look, it isn't, I, I'm not, that's not a fearful thing to me. When I, if I make a mistake, if I sin, if I do something stupid, I don't hesitate to go to him. I flee to him, because I've been doing this long enough. I know the program. He's the Savior, I'm the sinner. I, I have all the parts, you know. My role is clear, as it were. You know, he's the one who's perfect. I'm not perfect. And I flee to him. I run to him. I'm, I'm, you know, Lord, Lord, I want to bring every thought into captivity to you. Lord, I, I want to live that way. I'm calling you Lord. And, you know, the wonderful thing is, I think, when we do that, like, like what, what's he going to, you know, it isn't like, I got to give this up. I got to give it. You know, sometimes young Christians, well, I got to give this up. I got to give it. When you're 70 years old, what you're glad you're giving up is the grave, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you can see back further and you can see ahead, there's less to give up. And sometimes his stillness. Sometimes when I'm alone, I have a place and everything becomes so still that I'm overwhelmed. And there's tears. And there's no hesitancy to say, you're Lord, you're Lord. 
And his sweet presence comes to to commune with me. That's who he is. Who do you say that I am? I'm telling you who I say that he is. He's a savior. And 2,000 years ago when he died on that hill, he bore all of my sins, past, present, and future. He knows them better than I do. I never surprise him when I do something stupid. I might surprise my wife. I might surprise myself. I never surprise him. He knew what he was getting when he paid for it. And he is committed to continue the good work that he's begun in me, conforming me to the image of his son. You know, he's, he's, he's doing that, and it's wonderful. You know, just the great thing about the scripture is... You know, John says, in the beginning was the Word. The the Word was with God. The Word was God. And he uses the term logos there. In the beginning was the the Word of God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now look, what it's saying is from Genesis to Revelation, you have a person being revealed. The leaven of the Pharisees would make it a book of principles, and there are many principles. A, a book of what you need to perform and there's a lot of things that the scripture asks us in regards to our life but there's a person in every chapter that's being revealed the the Sadducees would try to take away from who in the world would want to take away from that person who in the world would want to do that and they do that only so they can indulge in whatever their carnal nature wants to do great question Whom do you say that I am? Isn't it? If you don't believe me, when you get home tonight alone with him, say, go on, ask me. He'll ask you. He'll ask you. Whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, we knew they would be the next three words. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. He ascribes two things to him, Messiahship and deity. Remarkably, he has hold of that. You're the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel, and you're the Son of the living God, Messiahship and deity. And Jesus answered and said unto him, you guys all know this, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee but my father which is in heaven and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it blessed art thou Simon Barjona he goes back to his early name his birth name you remember In John chapter 1, when his brother Andrew brings him to Jesus, Jesus said, oh, you're Simon Barjona. We're going to call you Cephas, which is Aramaic. It's rock, Peter, we have. And and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, the one who was born of Jonah, your father. You know, it's just, blessed are you that this has happened in the life of a natural man. He says, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is not by human reasoning. There isn't any way that any of us can embrace the blessing 
that Jesus is talking about here that comes from the Father, except it's given to us by his grace. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you. This is not, you didn't, this is not, you didn't get this in school. You can't get this on a report card. This is not human reasoning. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed it, but my Father who is in heaven. And he says, there's a, there's a blessing there. Look, how many of us realize that? Jesus, our master, is the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's real in our lives, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you guys. You know, my, again, my dad went to one church. My mom went to another church. They kicked me out of the house to go to church every Sunday while they sat home. I thought, well, church is so great. How come you sit home? And I would go to Horn and Hardox, you know, and uh, eat breakfast and come home and say, oh, church was great. Uh, I didn't know Jesus. But then the day comes for each of us, the hour, the place, the moment, when the light goes on and the tears come and Jesus is alive. Not church, not denominations, not a priest, not a pastor, but Jesus, personal relationship. And there's a blessing there. Because it's something God has revealed, the Father. The only way it comes, Spurgeon says, and to whom it comes. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee. But my Father which is in heaven, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So great verse, because afterwards he's going to build on that as well. Um, Look, the church is divided here in some ways, because the, the Roman Catholic theologians believe and teach that Peter, Peter's primacy, that Peter is the rock that the church is built on. And that here, as well as thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and Peter, of course, to them was the first pope. Uh, they believe in an apostolic succession going back to Peter. Um, Protestants, when Luther broke away, the Protestant Reformation, don't believe that. He says, thou art Petros, masculine gender, a piece of a rock or a stone. But upon this Petra, how many of you have been to Israel that's gone to Petra? A few, okay, good. Upon this Petra feminine gender will I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The rule in the Greek grammar is that they can't be the same thing. The second word in feminine gender can't be the same thing as the first word in masculine gender. So certainly to me, what the rock... You, and, and when you go there to Caesarea Philippi, it's all in front of you. Here, you know, here's this stream of these pebbles, these rocks, and then here's this huge rock precipice there. And you can almost see Jesus saying, look, you are Petros, but upon this precipice, this confession you made. People say, well, is, is it the confession or is it Jesus himself? Separate those if you can. You know, that's that. Yes, the answer to that is this, is one word. Yes, you know. But upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. That He is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. 
if the church isn't built on that and your life isn't built on that, your life is built on sand. Catholic theologians want to come back and say, well, Jesus spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, there's no gender. Cephas has no gender. Maybe he spoke Aramaic. I wasn't there. Neither were any of the Catholics that are saying that. Matthew was there. And the Spirit moved on his heart when he wrote Greek to use two separate words. Because look, in the Aramaic, there's no gender, but there are two distinct separate words for a stone and a large rock precipice. Evidently, that's what Matthew heard and remembered. And when the Holy Spirit quickened him and he wrote it in Greek, he wrote it with the distinction that came from the mouth of Christ when he said it. So look, the the great news is Peter, Rocky, you know, uh, that's a guy who shouldn't get out of the boat and walk on the water, by the way. But, you know, you're, you're Petros, but upon this profession, this confession you made, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Isn't that, look, that should be a relief to everybody in ministry. I will build. Takes all the pressure off, right? You want to be a good leader in the church? Be a good follower. I will build. And then the second part of it, my church. Ain't your church. I hear pastors all the the time say, my church. Well, if it's your church, he ain't building it. Because he said he was going to build his church. He says, I will build wonderfully my church. You know, sometimes people come and say, I just love what's going on here. I think, me too. I said, I I just get to be part of it. I I come to church because I can't wait to see what's going to happen. Are people going to get saved? Are people going to get healed? Are they going to cry? Are they laugh? Is the worship going to be good? How's the study going to go? I come with anticipation and expectancy because I just get to be part of it. Because he's building. He's doing something. We've seen it over the years, and it's wonderful. And I believe if we stay in here, we stay here. We stay dependent upon his Holy Spirit. In his love, who knows what we might see when so many others are turning away. So he says, thou art Peter upon this rock. I will build my church. So it's not me building his church. It's not him building my church. It's him building his own church. First time the word church is used in the New Testament. It's used, I believe, two more times in Matthew, and then it's used in Revelation. Uh, The ekklesia, the called out ones. Ek, you guys know from the Greek, means to be taken out of, to be out means out. Jesus wrote, talked about the resurrection, ek, out from among the dead. And the disciples say, what's he talking about, resurrection? Because they thought there would be one resurrection. Ek means out of. Kalio means to call. The church is those that are called out from among. How can we be culturally relevant if we're called out? The very indication in our name of the church is we're separate. We're distinct. The church is the called out ones, not the partners of it all. The called out ones, not the ones that are so cool nobody can tell the difference. We're the called out ones. And we're to be a distinct family and society 
And when the outsiders come in, they will know we're his disciples by the love that we have one for another. And it's lacking out there. If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, I really hope you'll come up and pray with us at the end of the service. You know, it has nothing to do with Calvary Chapel. We don't want you to join a denomination. We just want to introduce you to the one who's talking to us tonight. He said, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, and the gates of hell, Hades, are not going to prevail against it. You know, that's an interesting verse because some guys say, well, um, you know, it's hard to interpret that as gates are going to be chasing the church because gates don't do that. Is it going to be the church kicking in the gates of hell? You could look at some of it that way, that, that the gates of but it's the gates of Hades. We ain't gone there to get anybody. We're hoping the gates of Philadelphia will open up so we can bring Christ to them. Uh, when you go to the Middle East, one of the great things you see is in the excavations in some of these city walls that are 2,000 years old, when you go in, there's a turn, and you have the gate there. And the elders and the military leaders would sit in the gate And the gate is where they made their stratagems and their plans. Hades was the place where where the dead were held. Uh, We see it in a number of places in the New Testament. I think what Jesus is saying here, the strategies of death, the strategies of the dark side, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Look, here we are 2,000 years later. Lightfoot says by the end of the first century, in the church, there was congregational, uh, Episcopal, and Presbyterian forms of government. Right from the apostles, within a hundred years. That's why Satan hasn't stopped the church, because we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> if we all fit into one mold, he'd have taken us down a long time ago. But wonderfully, the gates of hell, the stratagems of hell, they're not going to prevail against it. Look, everybody take a deep breath. There's an election. Okay? Let me tell you who's going to win. You listening? You want to know? Okay. Whoever Jesus wants to win is going to win. And look, whoever wins, it will be his genius that that person is in. His wisdom, his ruling. What's the problem? You know, Paul told the church to pray for those in authority when Nero was on the throne. So that just so, you know, not so we could fit into a culture we approve of, but so that we can peaceably share the gospel of Jesus Christ of the lost world. I've preached in Germany several times in, in a social government with social medicine, socialized and the church was on fire. And they only recognized the, the Roman church and the Lutheran church there. So you're kind of even an outsider if you're a Bible church. But the church was thriving in a socialist world. You know, I don't know what God's doing here. I understand values. I have to vote for values. And there, there should be no compromise there. But I don't know what he's going to do. But I know this. He's way smarter than I am. It's not like he's checked in with me and said, Joe, who do you think I should put in the White House? I said, look, you should know this without asking me. No, I, none of that goes on. Right? There's a disease. 
Where the truth lies relative to that disease, who knows? It's been so politicized. The big pharmacy companies are so interwoven in it. Where's the truth in the middle of all of this? The truth is that Jesus is coming. It's going to be like the thief in the night in a day that you don't expect it. Any moment he could come. And he's genius because all of that is speaking and reminding us to hold loosely on this present world. I mean, how, how have our lives changed since COVID showed up? How many of people in the church have spent time with their family? What's your name again? You know, how many kids have seen their father? How many wives and husbands have talked to each other? How many Christians have said, I need to be more serious about this and less distracted by this? How many prodigals have come back and said, you think the rapture is happening soon? It was being good medicine for everybody. It's his genius. He, he allowed it to come. He drives me crazy, but he allowed it to come. And the gates of hell, the stratagems of hell, are not going to prevail against his church, his ecclesia, those whom he's called out of this world to himself, his sons and daughters, his family, his bride, the world in no way under the direction of principalities and powers is going to prevail against that. We have a destiny, and nobody's going to keep us from that. Amen? Uh, and we should live like that, that we're not attached to all that stuff out there. Think how much division there is out there, and the church is allowing it to get inside. That is wrong. It's carnal. The gates of hell themselves will not prevail against the church. And he said, I will give thee... The keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, look, um, he, he had been responding to Peter. This is singular here. I'm going to give thee, singular, the keys to the kingdom. Um, in chapter 18, he says this, Verily I say unto you, and these are all plural, you, all of you, you know, whatsoever you shall bind, all of you shall bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever ye, plural, you guys, shall loose on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. So he's speaking specifically to Peter here, but that promise comes to all of us. The scribe in Jesus' day would wear on his sash a set of keys. That was symbolic of the fact that the scribe, because he interpreted the law, would say these things are obligatory and these things are discretionary. You have no choice about this. You have to do this. But you can decide if you want to do this. Certain things were free. Certain things were, were bound. Certain were loose. Certain were bound. I know that a lot of in the in the church, there's a lot of people who take this. I bind thee, Satan. I bind you. I do this. I do that. I'm going to wrap you with chains. I'm going to throw you over the cliff. I'm going to. I understand what they're saying, but that that authority doesn't come from this verse. In fact, it's very interesting because there's a perfect tense here, and it says, "Whatever you bind on earth will already have been bound in heaven." And whatever you loose on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. 
You know, at the end of Luke, Jesus says, you know, I've given you this message of repentance and remission of sins. You go and you preach that. And we have the authority to say somebody, this is bound. If you accept Christ, you'll be saved. If you don't accept Christ, you will not. That's bound. We have the authority to say to somebody, if you're a Christian, you should not be living in sexual sin. We have the keys of the kingdom to say that. That's wrong. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be filled with hate and bitterness. That's that's not a, you know, a decision, yeah, maybe I will, maybe I won't. No, no, that's that's bound. Uh, can a Christian play cards? That's up to you. I don't think you should be gambling, being stupid. Feel free to play Uno. But, you know, there's certain things that are loose. Can a Christian dance? Some can, some can't, you know. Uh, you know, there, there's all of these deals. But he says, look, you guys, <laughs> Peter's made this profession, this confession, that I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's going to be a foundation for a building process that takes place. Peter will talk about it in chapter 4 of his first epistle. He remembers this conversation. And he says, that building is my church. It's the ecclesia. It's the called out ones. And the strategies of hell are not going to prevail against this. It's going to happen. And in the context of that, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. It says it here to Peter. says it to all of the disciples in chapter 18. What you decide is obligatory, what is bound, will already have been something that's bound in heaven. You're going to be speaking from the word, from the Holy Spirit. What you loose on earth, well, those will be the things that have already been loosed in heaven. Makes it easier that way, doesn't it? It's not, you're not up to you to tell somebody whether they can smoke dope or get drunk or be filled with hatred. It's easy. Here's the verse. This is what it says. Somebody comes to me and said, Joe, me and the family were praying about moving to Texas. What do you think? And I think, well... I don't have a verse for that. That's loose. It's up to you as long as you don't become a Cowboys fan. You know, the word eagle's in the Bible. The word cowboy's not in the Bible. You have to think about these things. So certain things are bound, certain things are loosed. And then look what he says right after that. Then charged he. Now it's strictly charged. It's the only time in Matthew. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. He strictly charged them that they shouldn't be telling people now that he's the Christ. Because look, they ain't got it straight yet. They're still going to argue about who's going to sit on his right hand, who's going to sit on his left hand. They're going to still, Peter's still going to think God's speaking to him when he rebukes Jesus in a few verses. You know, the rock is going to chop people's ears off. You know, the rock is going to say, not so, Lord, when the sheets are let down from heaven. Uh, the rock's going to have to be rebuked before the church at Antioch by Paul. You know, there's things here they still have to get together. So he says, all right, this is who I am. This is what you've heard. I'm alone with you guys. Do me a favor. Don't be my PR man at this point in time. Because you, I know you only have half the story straight. And then it says, from that time. Look, chapter 4, verse 17 here in chapter 16, verse 21, and in chapter 26, 
uh, whatever the verse is there, there's three times in Matthew's Gospel it says, from that time. And they kind of set off distinct periods that Jesus works through. And it's from this time something begins to change. It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again from the dead. And then Peter's going to say, far be it from you, Lord. That's why the Lord says, don't be, don't be my PR man. Well, you, you don't understand. You don't get the program here. He's going to have to rebu- get there behind me, say, you know the deal. So he says, from that time onward, he began to be very specific about his crucifixion and resurrection. Because, yes, he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, but they were vastly, they were expecting a vastly different Messiah. They were expecting somebody to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted to sit on his right hand and his left hand. They're still going to argue about who's going to be the greatest. He says, this is what has to happen now. He began to show them, present tense, he was showing them, this wasn't a one-time thing, unto his disciples, and these guys want to hear about the kingdom, how that he noticed this, he must go unto Jerusalem. He must do this. And then notice the ands here. He must go and suffer many things of the elders. He must go and suffer of the chief priests. He must go and suffer the scribes. He must go and be killed. He must go and then be raised from the dead. Uh, it's a, it's called a polysyndeton in the, the structure of it when when the word chi, the ands, tie ideas together. And understand, he wasn't just saying this. He wasn't just spouting off. The way those ands are arranged, every single thing that starts with an and, he elaborated, and it was very important. So he begins to be in the process of showing them, his disciples, how that he must. This is the necessity. This is what's going to happen. We must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders. Guys, we're going to get there. The religious leaders, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the leaders of the nation, the religious leaders. And the chief priest, Annas and Caiaphas, you remember what happens in the gospel, how he's taken there, he's beaten and so forth. And the scribes, the ones that know the law that should know that I'm the Messiah. And be killed. He's, he's going to elaborate that. That's important. And be killed and be raised. Interesting, that's passive there. I will be raised. There's other places where he says he's going to raise himself. There's other places where he said that the Spirit, Holy Spirit raises and rises him from the dead. Here he says he's going to go. He's going to be killed and be raised. That's passive. He's yielding to that. He's going to that. That's going to happen in his life. Raised again the third day. They don't remember this real well. After it happens, John, at least in his gospel, said, you know, we really didn't understand what he's talking about until after we received the Holy Ghost and we saw some of these things. John's honest about some of that. Then Peter, it's very interesting, took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, Lord. Now, Lord and rebuke don't go together in anybody's dictionary. He says, this shall not be unto thee, but he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, 
Thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Peter took him. It's an interesting phrase. It means Peter took him. Peter must be standing around thinking, well, I know this. He's telling us he's going to go there. He's going to get killed. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be maligned. Somebody's supposed to say something, and I'm the one that God the Father speaks to and blesses, so it's probably up to me to say this. And, and it says he takes Jesus. He took him. Evidently, he must have taken him by the arm, you study the phrase, and pulled him aside. Or at least pulled him and got his attention. And he began to rebuke him, saying, Lord, far be it. Don't let this happen to you, Lord. Be it far from thee. Pity thyself. God forbid this should happen. Be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. And look, then Jesus turned. That's really interesting. He, it's passive. He, he, this just happens. No doubt the Holy Spirit moving him. He turned and he said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, none of us want to hear Jesus say that to us, right? I mean, of all the things Jesus could say to us, that's the one thing you don't want to hear there, right? He says, and it's a present imperative there, get you must constantly be falling behind me, Satan. You know, when we read about the temptation in the wilderness, Luke chapter 4 verse 13 tells us that then Satan departed for a season. And evidently he's back here speaking through Peter because Satan had offered Jesus, look, here's all the kingdoms of the world, all the glory. If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give them to you because they're given to me. Jesus doesn't argue with that. He says there's another way besides the cross. Forget about the cross. Here, I'll give you the palace. And Jesus rebuked him. Here, no doubt he hears that voice again saying, no, no way. Don't get Jerusalem get killed. You must be kidding me. You know, there's another way. You don't have to take that route. He immediately realizes where that inspiration comes from. He turns around and he says to Peter, Peter, you know, look, is, is, is one of his disciples. And he says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, knowing the enemies there. Thou art an offense unto me. The reason is because you your savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. You guys know what it is to savor, right? To savor something. Right? I'm a carnivore. <clears throat> I love rack of lamb. <laughs> New Zealand rack of lamb. And I like that made so it's just pink. It's like medium. I don't like it rare. I don't like it well done. I want it bleeding just a little bit. And those lamb lollipops. You know, I just, I'll take that and put some salt on that. And when I put that in my mouth, the biblical word savor comes to life. <laughs> you know, I think of that dog in a cartoon when I was a kid. They would give him a dog biscuit. He would go, oh, and he would float up in the air, you know. Mm, savoring. <clears throat> he says, Peter, you're not savoring the things that be of God. They don't taste right to you. You don't understand. There's a day coming when Peter's going to stand up in the book of Acts 
and he's going to preach. 3,000 souls are going to be saved. It's going to tell us there, the Lord, he said, I will build my church, adds to the church daily such as should be saved. Peter, you know, you're not savoring. What tastes good to you right now is not the things of God, but the things of men. To avoid the cross. To go, I look, <clears throat> understand, we'll have to go there if the Lord tarries next week. If not, you ask Peter these questions. You know, he's going to challenge them. If you want to be his disciple, take up your cross. <clears throat> that was not... Um, that was not a minor discomfort when they heard that. They understood that anybody who took up a cross, that that was a prelude to crucifixion. They understood that to take up a cross meant you were on your way to where you would be crucified. And and he's going to lay out a challenge here to those who want to be his disciples, because Peter says avoid it. He said, no, no, it's not going to be avoided. This is the way it's going to go. And there's just a great challenge for us. We can take inventory. You know, any cross we carry, and people say, well, my mother-in-law, that's my cross to bear. No, no, that's not the way it goes. Look, uh, our cross, whatever we bear, is not propitiatory. We don't bear anything that helps pay for the sins of mankind. He did that alone. So anything that we bear is relative to him, to his church, to his people, to our calling. And he says, you can do that because the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. There's an end to it. Right? Read ahead. Great stuff. Um, sit home this week. We'll pray it right now. I would take a couple of days and just say... Listen to the Lord and see if he says to you, who, who, who do you say that I am? Am I Lord? And if I'm not Lord of all, I'm not Lord at all. I knew you would say that. You know, I mean, he does that to me. And he's really been challenging me about my attitude. And when I sit alone with him, there's something that's so sweet and heavy and different from this world. And you know, again, you really get in his presence, you feel, I am such a sinful man. And you can hardly breathe, but what is crushing you is his love and his grace. It's almost unbearable. So, great lesson, right? I mean, just take that time this week, COVID days, political days, all of the division and hatred and sanity that's going on around us, Get alone with Jesus. That's our destiny. That's our future. That's our home. That's where we're going to be satisfied. Whoever gets elected here, you ain't going to be satisfied. I guarantee you. Whoever gets elected here ain't going to solve the problems in the world. The only one who's going to solve the problems is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's coming and he's going to do that. We get to be part of it. That's our blessed hope. Let's stand. Let's pray together and we'll worship. Lord, we do thank you for these things. And uh, Lord, just you're building your church and the gates of hell and the whole culture. The, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, help us to keep in mind and in our hearts, by your word, by your spirit, 
that we are citizens. Our citizenship is not of this world. Help us to be good citizens while we're here, Lord, to be salt and light, a preservative. But help us constantly remember our citizenship is in heaven. Lord, teach us to love one another in such a way that when people come in, they, they, they know we're your disciples by the love we have one for another. Do not let political, racial, these tensions in our culture and around the world, Lord, don't let those things divide us. By your power, by your grace, let us love one another, Lord. Let this be a place of extreme difference to this lost and hopeless world, Lord. Let people come here, Lord Jesus, and melt in your presence, Lord, and be washed and cleansed and renewed and born again. Help us to stay on that track, Lord, that we might be part of that process. There's lots of other processes. That's the one we want to be part of. Lord, we put these things before you. And, Father, we we do pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.